Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. We are firmly in my wheelhouse today, bitches. Right, Merrin is here today with me. Merrin's not a World War I historian, but she's very excited. Why are you excited, Merrin? I am thrilled because um, a good friend of ours, Lucy, Lucy, Lucy Bethridge Dyson, um, who is a military historian and well known to us, is going to talk to us about something that frightens the life out of me, but about which I should know a little bit more, and that's horses. Because as far as I'm concerned, horses are scary at both ends and dangerous in the middle. And Lucy, because she knows an awful lot about them and their uses in the First World War, is going to educate me. Aren't you, Lucy? Great. I certainly hope so. I love that description, though. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, Lucy Merrin is just like us in that she uh, is refusing to live in the real world anymore and just wants to do history. Uh, and she's getting there, aren't you, Lucy? Yes. I, yeah, I'm getting there. It's just at the horrible balancing stage of trying to do everything and not yeah, die it. <laughs> <laughs> right. OK, let's start right at the beginning. Um and I'm gonna try let's try not to reference Warhorse with every one of these bloody answers as well. Especially where it rides down the middle of a very wide straight trench because everybody gets really angry. So let's suspend War Park Warhorse somewhere else, because it's a kid's book, people. Park him up. Park him up. Joey can fuck right off because we are gonna talk actual horses and proper horses and their roles um, and the expansion of using them and all kinds of different things, which is really exciting. Where was the British Army at the outbreak of World War One? So how many horses did they have? Was it enough? Um, and if not, what are the contingencies? Yeah, so um, even with the First World War, the British Army had about 25,000 horses, which was obviously nowhere near enough um, for the war that was to come. But pretty standard because um obviously looking after horses takes a lot of resources and having like a massive load of horses kicking about doing nothing in peacetime would be a, a big drain so you know in general armies kept it small um and all the major armies had a, a mobilization plan for horses because they all recognized that they were super important in war uh, and actually britain and germany had kind of revamped these plans in the run-up to the first world war you know Really, just like anything um, that was kind of going on in, in the precursor to the war, political tensions were high and all the rest of it. So they were looking at every element of, of how they could prepare and, and remount services. So, you know, when we talk about remounts, we're literally re-upping the horses, you know, adding more horses. So um, those plans were kind of both uh, readdressed by 
the, the British and German armies. Um, but they took different paths with it. So um, the British plan involved um, really more of an international effort. So their plans were based on access to the international horse market, whereas Germany's plans were very much based on increasing the number of horses within Germany, so breeding plans and that kind of thing. Um, but the British really, really... They, they chose the right approach uh, and, and it really served them well in the long run. So the first thing they did was they had like a, a kind of voluntary acquisition scheme um, and you could register your horse and the, the army would pay you like a set fee a year um, to maintain your horse, keep it in good order, good working order, you know, one careful owner. Um, and, you know, the, the, you get that money every year with the proviso that you would um, hand your horse over to the army uh, if they came knocking. And then they also had this um, conscription kind of scheme called impressment. And that was, um, you know, really based on a pre-war census of horses that took place in 1911. And the army uh, could, you know, force you to give your horses up um, to the military. And they did both those things. And, you know, I know you've already mentioned War Horse, and we are going to mention it a bit today. <laughs> I think like a lot of people's views on, um, you know, horses in the First World War is based around that story. You know, the idea of, you know, the military plowing into all the villages and stripping them all all their horses and leaving kids crying in the street because the the ponies away. And that's what happens in War Horse, isn't it? Yeah, that's what happens in War Horse. Um, And, you know... It's just not true. You know, the, the countryside wasn't stripped of horses because horses were an integral part of life at the time. And had we stripped our country of horses, um, the home front would have collapsed. because no food for a start. Exactly. Um, and, and I think it was one of those things, like everything in the war, you know, after the war, things were written, you know, folklore kind of kicks in, doesn't it? And you hear about businesses that had all their horses taken. And actually, you look at the records and it was like two of eight taken and then they were replaced fairly quickly afterwards you know with, with other females um but the the british horse conscription scheme the, the impressment scheme worked really well and the british army raised 165,000 horses um in just 12 days after war was declared which was wow. awesome um and you know the bef was complete for, for remounts by the 18th um, of august so that is pretty incredible and when you put that in context of the fact that uh, the horse population was around about two and a half million in the UK. That gives you some idea of really how few horses were taken in, in those, you know, that initial kind of bulk. Um, so yeah, that kind of gives an idea of really the scale of it, which I think is often blown out of proportion. And, and not, not all horses were suitable, surely, because when I think of horses, I think of shy horses and little Shetland ponies, and there's quite a big difference, isn't there? Yeah, they qualify which ones they wanted. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, n- not all horses are created equal. Um, and Although the yeah. thought of a cavalry charge on Shetland ponies makes it <laughs> be like Thelwell, wouldn't it? Little yeah. fat ponies. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a, there's a Shetland Pony Grand National, and I was just, it's a joy to watch every year. Oh, you should totally that if you haven't seen it. Um, but yeah, I mean, so the British Army had a bit of experience, obviously, with, with this. We learned the hard way in the Boer War. Um, well, they kind of accepted any old horse going. Um, and, you know, you've got South Africa, didn't treat them very well, didn't have time to acclimatise, they sent them out and they lasted, you know, like a blink of an eye and they all died, basically, and you had horrendous wastage figures. So um, actually going into the First World War, the British Army was super prepared. The Remount Commission had um, documentation 
like 1911 types of horses suitable for remounts um, and they would go around and they would thoroughly inspect their horses you know like check them over they would all be veterinary checked um, and they wouldn't accept anything there were problems so in Ireland in particular um, because you can imagine as a farmer or whatever you've got a couple of old nags that aren't doing that good work anymore and the army's come around saying oh we'll pay you 20 quid for your horses or whatever happy days you know this one's awesome give me loads of money Exactly. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so people did do all kinds of things to try and um, get around that. Um, so there's a problem in Ireland, also in Spain with mules. So um, we bought a lot of our mules from Spain. And there's like loads of accounts of the remount commissions when they vi- uh, visited all the little villages and stuff of like people come around being like this mule. And then they'd inspect it and they'd be like, no, not this mule. And then they'd just go out and come back around and they might have painted like a line on his, like, you know, like a blaze on his face or something. Like, this is a totally different mule. With <laughs> <laughs> a blob of white paint on his face. I love it. Yeah, um, so you had all this kind of stuff going on. People went to extremes. I mean, they even, like, removed horses' teeth and stuff so that they couldn't be aged um, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it it wasn't a case of all horses were equal. And certainly um, high-quality horses really were what they were after. And, and did, did whether they were shot, see, I know a technical term here, did whether they were shod or not factor in this, as in were they prepared? No, so they they wouldn't necessarily be ready to go. So all the horses um, would go to the remount depots and they'd all be trained and, you know, go through like a conditioning, a bit of training process. Um, and particularly when uh, the British Army, so one of the major advantages that Britain had is access to the international horse market, as I mentioned earlier, something that Germany didn't have. Um, and one of the big things, clever things that we did was um, actually agreed a process with America. Uh, so the majority of horses and mules that Britain used came from this huge equine market in America. You know, America at the time had a population of about 30 million horses um, and about 8 million of those were, you know, kind of broken and trained. And um, so having access to that pool was a massive advantage. And, you know, the British were shipping over huge, huge numbers. We spent around 36 million um, pounds throughout the war with America just on horses and mules, which is a staggering amount. And they came over in, in transports, what, in the holds? Or... Yeah, it was um, a really, really, I mean, it's amazing to think about how the, com- the complexity of getting horses from all over the states, so the railroad, the infrastructure that needed to be put in place over there in the states, the remount depots, so they would be shipped to, you know, collection pens where they'd be inspected by the British, and if they wanted them, they'd, you know, you get branded with the broad arrow, um, and they'd then go to another depot further along where they'd be checked for disease, that kind of thing. And then they'd be loaded onto ships and taken back to um, usually sometimes straight to the front, but most often um, to the UK. And you had a you know around about a cargo of about five hundred to a thousand animals leaving the US every one and a half days during. That's a lot of pony. And um, as they sort of boarded the ship, were they already earmarked, as it were, for different jobs at the other end when when they were offloaded? Did they know where they were going to send each pack of horses? So yeah, so you know your kind of battalions or you know where the horses were needed, you put in your requests for remounts basically, and then the remount um, department would sort out where they were coming from. We talked about how they got them. Let's talk about what they did. Um, let's wind you up and get it out of the way. So all horses just went in the cavalry, right? That's where the most of them went. Yeah, that's right, Alex. No, that is <laughs> not right. <laughs> it's not right. It's very wrong, and it makes me very angry. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean. I guess we've kind of touched on it a bit, but it's, you know, the horse in war is a, is a, a particular goldmine for myths. I think because the horse has been in war with man 
you know, since man started fighting, basically, mm. like in horses with us. Throw in all the, you know, First World War, donkey, cavalry, generals kind of nonsense. Yeah. And you get this hot pot of just bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, do you know what percentage of horses who served in World War One actually were ridden in, into battle as a cavalry a troopers horse. I don't know the exact percentage. Maybe but not into cav- battle, but in their units. The cavalry was very small part of the horse story in the First World yeah. War. It was a very, very small part. It's been blown up, um, really, I guess, because of things like War Horse or a lot of how the horse has been mythologized in, in film in the First World War is this kind of like, oh, you know, cavalry plowing into machine gun fire and everyone getting slaughtered, which is obviously not true anyway, in most of the occasions. Um, you know, reality, the main jobs horses did was was transport. You know, the Royal Artillery, I mean, they their horse establishment went up from something like 6,000 horses um, to 25,000 horses, you know. In yeah. I mean, guns weigh a lot. You don't want and the amount of men you'd need to yank. There are pictures of men dragging them along, but that is just a complete waste of resources when you can have a horse do it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when you think about the number of guns in a battery, batteries in a brigade, brigades in a division. So six, cross- six guns, right? Yeah. Six 18-pounders, three batteries in a brigade, and brigades numbering over 300, up to yeah. 400. 300, yeah. So soon, soon that's up, doesn't it? Yeah, it's and that's a small gun. That's a small gun. Then yeah. you've got the big ones. Then you've got the beast guns. Yeah. And so when you think that that's just, that's just moving, you know, artillery about, that's one tiny, you know, I mean, it's a big part, but it, it's, again, it's a, it's a small part in a, in a big story. And you kind of got all these things coming together. Um, and they were involved in pretty much every aspect of the war, you know? Um, so yeah, of course we've got artillery guns. You think about that, you see the pictures of horses putting guns, but you know, you've also got, you know, the dear old ASC, the army service corps, unglamorous, you know, we often forget about them. It's not a, yeah, it's not like people really want to look into, I've found. But actually, incredible work they did. And they relied on horses and mules, um, you know, to get everything from ammunition to rations um, anywhere in, in across all the fronts, you know, relied on horses. This is the thing, isn't it? So many of these fronts. So you talk about even on the Western Front, roads are inadequate for the scale of the war. But then move somewhere, I'm sure we'll come on to Palestine later because they're cavalry rocks it because you're looking at huge wide open spaces um, and you can't use a car so and lorries are at a premium anyway so horses really are absolutely crucial aren't they they're essential and i think again you know we need to think about the you know the period we're talking about here where the combustion engine was pretty much in its infancy um and actually in day-to-day life relied on the horse um and okay all right you know, on the front, you might have your light railway roads. Obviously, they were super important. But still, you look at, like, the wet and the mud of the Western Front. Ain't no trains crossing that, you know. Ain't anything with an engine crossing that. And actually, as the war went on, fewer horses were crossing that. And the mules were what really came to the forefront. Which yeah. you, knew, you knew I was going to mention mules at some point. Always. So just, we'll do, I just, I was laughing my head off because I Googled it. Ali Sloper's Cavalry, that's the nickname, isn't it? For mm. Army Service Corps. Yeah. Uh, talk about mules to people who don't know the difference. What is a mule and why are they different to horses? Do you know what a mule is, Alex? I think a mule is a cross between a horse and something else, a donkey, maybe. Yeah, it is. And they're smaller <laughs> and they're 
hard they are nails they're like anything a horse goes no i'm not having that a mule will do it and a mule will like own it and i know this from the kids magazine the great war group because our mascot is now monty the mule and rob um thompson who the logistics king who waffles incessantly about lines of communication and supply is actually doing letters from monty for the kids to read so we're learning i'm learning from an eight-year-old's letter uh, all about mules in the first world War. as it should be there weren't more mules and horses but certainly towards the end of the war um uh, and certainly 1917 um on the western front mules were really um super important because like you've said, I mean, you pretty much nailed it. So a mule is an offspring between a, a male donkey and a female horse, not the other way around. So that gives you a hinny, which is a different animal, bizarrely. Um, and yeah, they are, they are very, very nimble and they are very sure footed. So that allows They'll them. They'll mountains and stuff. Yeah, they can pick through just like any kind of landscape, basically. And particularly important in the kind of, so that makes them great for like Palestine and those kind of areas. But Western Front, um, you know, when we're looking at the mud and the horrible conditions, mules are, they are really hard and they will put up with much tougher, much harsher conditions um, than horses will without getting sick. So that was a major benefit for them. There's um, a guy on mule corps in Gallipoli as well, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, there was and, and Cypriot as well. Um, and they are, the other thing about them is, I mean, they're so misunderstood, but they are super, super intelligent. They're more intelligent than a horse, arguably. Um, and, you know, they have, have a kind of, there's been studies done on mules, you know, where they, they've kind of reached the conclusions that they have cognitive ability to, and they're almost self-aware to see what's going to happen next in a situation. So this gives you an advantage, obviously, you know, where a horse might just plod along and do whatever and I'm being harsh to horses here I shouldn't really but a mule might consider the situation a little more and make you know place its foot in a different place you know and kind of make those decisions based on on what's going on around it um with a lot more yeah a a lot more sense and and, you know a lot more kind of background info so so I've got a question because my limited experience with horses is having something snuffling in my pocket and being scared for Jesus when it happened whether it's a horse or a mule, are they self-reliant to some extent? Do they fuel themselves? Will they go and look for food themselves? It's not a silly question. Will they graze themselves? Will they will they fuel themselves as they go wherever they can? Yeah, I mean, that was a big issue was obviously fueling fueling the animals, you know, like you would with a motor vehicle, right? You've got to put, put something in to get them to work hard. Um, and certainly that was a big challenge for for the military. So, you know... Yes, a horse, if it's off its, you know, if it's let free somewhere, it's going to go off and find a nice patch of grass. But in reality, in, in, in the battlefields, that really wasn't often um, available to them. Usually they were not let loose to sort of kick about and do what they want. Uh, and secondly, finding that food was very, very challenging. You know, the amount of fodder that was shipped over to France and Belgium is often quoted as, you know, it's the biggest export. Um, you know, they're shipping over so much fodder from Britain, you know, hay and oats, um, you know, way more than, than anything else because they've got to feed the army of horses that are out there to support the men and even feed the men out there, right? Because without the horses, you can't get your rations to your boat. Yeah. I'm just seeing Ivy's just strolled into the room and sat down. She's interested in what you got to say as well. Ivy will undoubtedly be in your cartoon for this episode as well. Uh, So we talked about cavalry being tiny. We've talked about um, logistics. We've talked about artillery. Any other major centres of horse employment? 
Yeah, I mean, I've said they're, they're kind of involved everywhere. And even you can even look at like, um, you know, the war industry at home. So if you look at like horses, like the Navy, for example, you wouldn't think horses were particularly vital to the Navy in the First World War. But, you know, the shipyards, what do you think was moving all the materials around to build the ships? Um, so, you know, you've got that. You've got, um, you know, medical side of things. So evacuating the wounded, particularly on Gallipoli. So donkeys were, were very good there. Donkeys are... They tolerate the heat. Um, Didn't the Australians try and give a VC to a donkey at Gallipoli? There's a lot of nonsense about donkeys in Gallipoli, to be fair. Yeah, um, they get far too much of the credit, I feel. Yeah, yeah. but, you know, um, they, they were used, mules and donkeys were, were used in, in those kind of um, areas, Macedonia, France, Italy, those kind of regions to evacuate the wounded because how else are you going to do it? Um, and you've also got Good. things like... Yeah, you've also got the Forestry Corps. So, you know, where are you getting your timber to build your trenches? Forestry Corps. What's lo- hauling the logs? Horses. It's like a you can pretty much circle backgrounds to horses in the First World War, wherever you're looking. So, so the, these horses are, are certainly, they're really earning their pay. But are there any other myths around them that actually drive you insane, things that you hear all the time? Yeah. There are. <laughs> She's like, come on, get on your soapbox. <laughs> get on your, get on your hobby horse. Come on. <laughs> I think, I think probably the biggest one is, is just really that the army didn't care about the horses. Um, I think whenever we talk about animals and war, it's, it's very emotive and particularly with horses. I, there is a thing about horses just generally that kind of really connects with a lot of people. Um, maybe, maybe not you, Meryn. Um, they just terrify you. Just think of them as some kind of jittery glass-eyed dinosaurs, but you know, <laughs> the, the, you know. Considering she lives in the countryside, it's even more funny. They have no brakes. I understand you can get them to go faster, but I can never find the brakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think because of that, because of this emotional connection that we have with horses in our society, um, that we don't think of them anymore as, as working animals. You know, that's not their role in our lives anymore. Um, it's changed dramatically over the last 100 years. So when we talk about the First World War and horses, there's this kind of default thing of, well, the army didn't care, all those innocent animals were killed. You know, much like it plays into, I guess, a lot of the butcher myths that apply to the yeah. men as well. Um, and it's kind of that side of it. Well, in reality, actually, they were incredibly valuable. Um, and the British army were fully aware of that. Um, and in many cases, they cared more for the horses, or they were more valuable than men because they were harder to get hold of yeah. um, at times. Sorry, Alex, do we know um, how much they actually spent on horses in the end? Um, I don't know the total figure, but if you think that it was like 40, 40 million odd was spent just getting them from America, um, that gives you, yeah, some kind of guideline as to how much is spent. But yeah. they were, li- they were limited number. I mean, this is the problem that Germany faced is they, because they focused their remount plans on the domestic market and they soon ran out of horses. Yeah. They then didn't have the kind of vast supply lines that Britain had. You know, Britain was shipping horses from all over the world, from Australia, from South America, from, from the US, everywhere. Germany, they really only had the horses that were in Germany and then the horses that they were you know, taking in the land as they were kind of progressing throughout the war. I really want to know, as a total horse moron, um, what different types of horses do the different jobs? Like, you're not going to have a shy horse as a cavalry horse, I get that. And the shy horse is the hairy one, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah my mum's got My horse knowledge done. 
so um so yeah you've got um your your heavy draft breeds like a shire horse so they've got their big feathery legs so big furry legs um really stocky um i had a my little pony in front of those yes that's what they are they are big old bitches Uh, my mum's got one and um they are lovely horses so the interesting thing about a shire horse is yes they are very strong they are pussies. Um, they are so <laughs> gentle. They are quite spooky. They can be quite like, you know, like loud bangs on the battlefield. And they're very sensitive. Mm. Not great war horses, you know, not great. Um, but very good for pulling, um, you know, heavy, heavy guns. Then you've got your light draft horses. So they're stocky, you know, they're muscly. They're not quite as big as a shire, but they're not your kind of racehorse skinny mm kind of cavalry mount that you might think of and they were really the most important horses um so your light draft was often bred with shire horse so you might get like the strains of the strengths coming through in the build of the horse um but you'd get the kind of the other characteristics of the slimmer breed so you'd get the agility a bit more speed um bit more nimble so able to move around a lot um probably the most important breed or a breed that's been cited as one of the most important for the allies throughout the war is a a breed called the percheron um and they were really incredibly successful just because of the characteristics they have of the breed so they're very strong in the neck um they are incredibly quick for their size which is great and most importantly they're super chilled so they will put up with noise going on they're not bothered they're really calm they're quite stoical um and they're smart so they'll learn they're they're the Dwayne Johnson they're the rock of the horse world the rock of the horse world and if you google a Percheron and look at them you can totally see it and also the Percheron like I mean I'm getting super nerdy now but the Percheron doesn't have um feathers so it doesn't have fairy legs even though it's a stocky breed so it's easier to look after in the mud it's easier to clean but it doesn't have feathers it doesn't have (laughs) It doesn't have feathers. So not bad feathers, you understand. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. <laughs> Merit's complete. Enlighten me here. So far, I've got large horses with feathers. She's so, going down the whole dinosaur route again. Now. <laughs> the feathers are the long, long fur that horses get on their legs. So heavier breeds tend to have these long, these long bits of fur on their legs. So um, yes, Merrin, and for anybody else listening who doesn't know, that's what I'm talking about. Although I love the idea of um, just Pegasus. Well, yeah, exactly. I'm like, I want to know, but I had My Little Pony was the flying ones as well with the plastic wings. So I'm guessing we didn't get any of those. They don't exist. No, um, sadly, 
neither do unicorns, which makes me very sad. But what if you put a German pickle halber helmet on a horse, then you kind of have a unicorn. You do. Vaguely, vaguely. I've got a question, though. That there's a word you use lots of times, and that's different breeds. Yes. And because my because my head's hardwired this way, I want to know about breeding. Did the different did, – did, did, did we see foals? Did Your we, head's hard, hardwired to breeding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Checking. Just checking, yeah. Lockdown we, has been uh, difficult on Mary. Yeah. <laughs> did we have unexpected breeding going on? Um. No, uh, mainly because, um, you know, breeding horses is is a whole thing and looking after foals is a whole thing. And, you know, like generally speaking, that's not something you want to be doing in a war zone. Um, although there are some, you know, there are an odd story or two of, of foals, um, usually from, you know, where like they've come from a French farm or something like that. There's some really lovely photos of um foals with the british army where they've just come across them and they've kept them and they've tried to raise them adopted them made a mascot out of them along with every other animal they got their hands on yeah were they they good for morale then did they actually keep them as pets yeah definitely i think that's a you know that's an area of the horse and more that's kind of yeah you gave um, that in your notes why are they so important for morale and not terms of just like oh isn't it cute but they're far more well thought out than that as well isn't it yeah definitely i mean we all know the importance of sport and morale in the first world war right so um you know sport and leisure activities pretty vital um to maintaining morale they break up the inertia of war encourage a bit of unit cohesion you know kind of a nice leveler among men and officers and all this kind of stuff um and horse shows were pretty central to that weirdly actually i've got this this little still kind of a medallion on my desk and just for everybody listening i've just happened to have this here and it's a little um first army horse show um medal from 1917 it's interesting you mentioned this and because it's something i'm super interested in um so yeah you you know it kind of brought people a bit of i guess a bit of connection with their civilian identities the horse is you know it's got this ability to provide a kind of tonic i guess it's a weirdly humanizing factor that you get from an animal you know you Men often became very fond of their horses. Uh, they put their own ne- their needs above their own. So, you know, men, you look in the memoirs, you'll often see and read things about men providing shelter, finding food, finding cover for their horses before them. Um, and it was really important, lifting spirits. And the bond between soldier and horse is something that hasn't been studied a great deal, apart from, um, you know, Jane Flynn has done some really amazing work on that recently. But it's certainly an aspect that's um, under research for sure. I really want to talk to you about um, looking after them because I think our listeners will be surprised to learn that the biggest threat to a horse in the First World War is not a German in a pointy helmet with a gun. It's disease. Is that right? Yes, exactly. And yet again, I'm coming back to War Horse and all those myths. Um, we see a theme here. Yeah, he's under fire a remarkable amount of times for a horse. Isn't he just? Yeah, you got, you know, you got your image of Joey running through explosions left, right and centre and, you know, the horse the Germans couldn't kill and all of that. Well, yes, obviously, you know, shoot a machine gun at a horse, um, spray it with bullets, it's going to die. But, you know, in reality, um, this happened, wasn't a major killer for horses, you know, shrapnel, big problem because obviously transport supply lines um, were a target, a big target. So there was obviously that to be mindful of. But disease, um, bad conditions, just like men, you know, living in cold, wet conditions for extended periods of time is not good for horses. 
many suffered quite severe skin problems, um, which were very difficult to treat. If you can't get dry, it's very difficult to, to treat these problems. Um, with horses, their feet and their legs are particularly susceptible. So if you're standing a long time in, in mud, that's going to be a big, big issue. Um, and the mud contained bacteria, and this often led to horses going blind, and that was a big problem. Effectively, actually, I'll tweet these when we put your episode out so that people can see them. Remember those veterinary pictures I tweeted a while back? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're really, really good. And, you know, weirdly, the blindness thing affected mules less so, but for horses, it was a big problem. Um, and the other big problem was um, supplying, and Meryn touched on it before, but supplying adequate food and water to the horses you know what it's like with people you know if you if you don't eat if you're tired you're much more likely to get sick and it's the same with the animals and it's the same with horses so stories of horses who were just starving because they couldn't get enough to eat that they were eating their own blankets you know they're eating sand in the middle east this is specifically as well really a problem that the germans can't even feed their men by 1918 so their horses were in a right state weren't they yeah it's a massive massive problem um, and horses are you know, the mules fared much better um, because they are a bit tougher in that regard. They can cope with kind of rougher conditions and, and less food and they can do more with less food. Um, but horses are quite sensitive. And, you know, when a horse gets sick and its spirit broken, mm. then it's working a lot less hard. And horses emotionally, if they're broken, they get depressed, they give up and they die. And, you know, exhaustion was the biggest killer of horses, um, particularly in 1917. So they become a drain on resources at that point because you've got to handle their carcasses, surely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they, the British set up the disposal of the disposal of animal branch was set up in, uh, I think it was 1917, actually. And that dealt specifically with getting rid of the dead horses, because what do you do with them? You can't have them kicking about the battlefield. You know, you can have disease and all kinds of things. Now, I've, I've got um, um, a vague recollection of having her. Now, you can you can blow this myth out of the water. Were the carcasses used as like observation posts? So there were soldiers in sort of hiding inside them, like camo horses. Yeah, yeah. That I have read a few things of that. Um, yeah, them being used for that. I don't think it, I don't know if it was like an official thing. Um, but the. They did have, um, yeah, so the disposal of animals branch of, uh, of the Army Veterinary Corps, that had um, what they called horse carcass economiser detachments, which is, gr- is as grim as it sounds. Um, and their job was um, the disposal of carcasses. So they would butcher the remains and, you know, get the most out of them. So they would use any bits that they could so that the skins, you know, the hides were, were sold um, leather to get a bit more money back in. Um, and they processed something like you know, 65,000 horses and mules between 1917 and 1918. Um, and that was just that small kind of, just a small wow. section. Um, but yeah, all, all kinds of uses. They, they made, boiled all their bones up to make, you know, kind of adhesives and all kinds of things and soaps they, and all kinds of things. Did they eat horses? Um, did they use, did they use, I mean, obviously not ill horses, but was there ever a point at which the lack of resources going to the front line meant, well, we've, we've got on the hoof down there, we've got 74 meters. Yeah. There's definitely been isolated incidents of that. And I think actually the, the eating, the consumption of horses um, was a, a bigger kind of cause for concern and certainly in the public mind after the war, which is something I think we'll, we'll chat about a bit later. Mm. I think as well, you've also got situations like the the big retreat in Serbia, 
horse drops dead people are falling on it and eating it raw these people are starving and they're driven through the mountains in the middle of winter Uh, but this this is a last resort it's obviously not in anyone's interest to let a horse die if you can do anything about it so talk to us about the army veterinary corps what is the scale of it yeah so the the abc was um it's formed in 1903 but it probably wasn't really up and running until about 1906 um you know, weirdly, the care of horses, even though they've been such a big part of warfare for so many centuries, it's kind of not really been centralised up until that point. So they're really looked upon just as replaceable tools because you didn't have a war. Was that, so is that an offshoot of the Boer War? Because that really was an unmitigated disaster and a, um, like a PR nightmare, wasn't it? The horse. It was. It was. Um, so it wasn't just- like, oops, people were outraged. Yeah, it was a huge thing. There was a whole inquest after the war about horses and their treatment. Um, and, you know, when we talk about the number of horses that you lose in a war, we, we say the wastage figure. So that's, that's the terminology that we use. Um, and the bar war was about 67%. So 67% of all the horses and mules and equines that, that were involved in the war died in the war, were lost. I mean, that is, that's negligent, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And, and it was, you know, this is not just to do with, um, you know, individuals not treating their horses well. This is a this is an institutional problem about not understanding the value of horse care. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, after that, the, the you know, the British Army um, went through a lot to to get to a really good place, basically, the Army Veterinary Corps. And it wasn't easy because a lot of people were like, well, this isn't important. And, uh, you know, and you had these kind of key figures who were like, no, it is. I'm, I'm working really hard. Um and so pre-war, we were in quite a good place, the British. Um, and during the First World War, absolutely incredible. The British Army did an amazing job looking after their horses. Uh, the wastage figure was around about 14%, which obviously, when you, you're comparing that to the Boer War, a huge improvement straight off the bat. Do we have an actual figure for, for how many horses were conscripted and how many came back at the end? Yeah, there are figures, there are, you know, it's interesting because you've got kind of all your statistics for where all the different horses are taken from and it's done in kind of like the annual blocks and you can kind of roughly work it out. But because of what happened post-war um, when they were demobilising the horses, it's quite difficult to tell the exact numbers um, that were killed. But certainly, um, you know, the British did an incredible job compared to other nations that were involved. So, you know, Austria had a horse wastage of around 75%. Um, France was about 40% and, and Germany was about sort of 35%. So you can see how far ahead really the British army were um, with their treatment for horses. Um, they had horse hospitals set up left, right and centre um, in, in France and they pioneered treatment and you know the control of disease as well so they took that really seriously because um contagious diseases in horses is a big problem you're sticking your sick horses in with your rehabilitating horses unmitigated disaster um so they, they were really aware of that and really on top of it um and of course yeah, you do have scenarios don't you like there's um i don't remember if this was the sin- scenario there's definitely a place where there's a, a whole load of horse remains in gallipoli but um where if you so if you were evacuating say gallipoli you would just have to slaughter the horses on your way out because you couldn't leave them to the enemy yeah definitely because they were so valuable you know this is what we're saying this whole thing um those, those were occasions but you know there's also again a lot of myths around that this the idea of the that's probably one of my most irritating myths actually the anzacs shooting all their horses yeah, that happened. Um, 
it didn't happen because why are you going to shoot horses that are perfectly decent if you can mobilize yeah. and move them out of the area you're not because they're so valuable and that was one hell of an operation to get people to get the MEF off of Gallipoli and I don't think they would have just gone oh yeah just kill the horses that's fine yeah they did have to in Gallipoli yeah. Some of them they did have to get rid of for sure um but it wasn't something that you know this kind of callous thing was just like oh you know we're done here let's just yeah so we'll just shoot them and then we'll yeah. worry about that it wasn't like that at all was it no definitely not um and the ABC as well you know the army veteran corps was also responsible for um, another really important thing, which is um, farriering and shoeing your horses, which was a huge thing. So, um, yeah, that was a massive thing just in itself. The quartermaster general department provided something like 60 million horseshoes during the war. Wow. I mean, it's a staggering number. Um, and I love the quote that's um, no shoe, no foot, no foot, no horse, no horse, no transport, no transport, no battalion. That pretty much sums sums up how important horse care um, and, and that horse husbandry is in the First World War. So that that goes back into what did you say? Sixty million shoes. Yeah. So so where do you find the metal for sixty million shoes? I know. Well, this is it, and and you can imagine how I guess how much the kind of horse supply and the, the remount department had to battle in terms of the logistics and all the kind yeah. of politics that then came into it when they're talking about the amount of supplies and industry they needed to support the horses. Um, it, it really impacted and had kind of like branches into all areas of the military. So, so if, if we're talking about looking after horses, and we, we just said that, that come the day there was a tendency to say, well, we've got to get rid of them because the enemy will use them and we don't care about them that much. How did the how did the British stand compared to other nations when it comes to looking after them in general? Were we on par? Were we good at it? Uh, arguably the best. Um, the French notoriously... I'm gonna probably gonna get gonna wind so many people up now. It's gonna be French. <laughs> like, ah. um, but you know that the, the French didn't treat their horses particularly well, um, unfortunately. And um, the German army did really to a degree um, because they. I they, think that was more for a want of resources than a, a, an actual disregard for your horses. I think German efficiency. If they could have looked after their horses like we did, they would have. Yeah, I think that's spot on. Whereas I think the French just had a different attitude, is the yeah. kind of way to put it. Um, you know, <laughs> um, but the wastage figures kind of speak for themselves when you when you consider. Did you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, finally, and this, I say finally, but this is a big one and it's an important one. We all know how complicated it is trying to demobilise massive armies after the war, and how much trouble it caused, and how long it dragged on for. What about the horses? Because they are a drain on resources. You're going to want them off your hands as soon as possible. What happened? Yeah. So if you think, you know, you've mobilised all these horses, you know, you've got your 800,000 horses out in the field or whatever it is, and the war ends, suddenly you've got a load of horses all over Europe that you don't know what to do with and you have have no use for, basically. So the demobilisation um, was a huge thing. Um and the welfare of these horses that were no longer fit for military use or no longer required. And, and when we talk about these horses, we say cast horses. So they were cast. Um, and that really pulled on the heartstrings of the British public. Um, and actually, it's not it's not the British Army's finest hour, but it was a really difficult thing because you had debates around the kind of the practical side of things and then the sentimental side of things. Yeah. yeah, and life had to get back to normal. 
life had to get back to normal getting men home had to be a priority not horses and you know realistically what's available in terms of moving horses back quarantining them all those kind of things it's very difficult to do so um, they had a, a process of um, categorizing animals. So um, horses got categorized A A to D um, and horses that were categorized as D, they were ones that could no longer work, were, were over, you know, over a certain age, um, were perhaps badly injured or in bad condition. Um, and they were um, destroyed basically quite quickly. Um, and that was really just to aid in, in just getting all these horses you know, out and about. If you know the ones that you can't save and are going to need a lot of work, better to destroy those and focus on the animals that you know can be resold, um, can be shipped home, can be made use of somewhere else, basically, in order to, to save as many as possible. Really tough call, though, if you've got to be the man who's got to sort it out. Yeah, it was, and, and it was never going to be a popular thing. Um, you know, so a lot of the other animals, so the category A to C animals, you know, they kind of had different fates. Some of them were repatriated, um, you know, a few of them were. Um, many of them were sold on the continent. Um, some did end up, you know, selling a horse in France. That might not end up, you know, working too long. It might end up on your plate somewhere. Um, and it, it was a big problem. We think about it now, it kind of makes us wince a bit. You know, all these animals that worked their backsides off in the war for us um, and then we sold them and some of them got particularly in the Middle East it was a big problem um, just because of the cultural differences between how they view animals some of them were treated quite poorly after the war arguably they had a better life in the army in the war than they did afterwards um, and Dorothy Brooke um, famously set up her charity to help ex-war horses um, in Egypt you might have heard of the Brooke Foundation it's still going today and yeah. um, they still support um you know, all the kind of working horses and donkeys across the world. Um, and it was a big, big thing. It was a big, big thing in, in, in British society that the plight of these war horses, charities, you know, the RSPCA, the Blue Cross, who, worth noting, they were pretty central um, and, and involved in horse care throughout the war. The Army Veterinary Corps couldn't have been as successful as it was without those charities as well. Um, and they appealed to people to for donations to help these ex-war horses and then you kind of get into this whole field of the veteranization of horses after the war which is something for another day but again a really interesting area to look at it's so british as well isn't it that arguably there's guys begging on the street who fought in the army and there's people going schizo over the plight of the horses that's such a british thing it is definitely i was just going to say i mean we're, we're we're light years off from the industrial revolution but as far as I can understand, horses were embedded in culture still. They were integral to the way we lived still. I mean, certainly here in East Anglia, it would have been horses first, not horsepower. Not yeah. horsepower. So yeah. the importance of bringing them back or, or, or maintaining the, the sense of integrity to looking after them, at least stood, stood us in good stead. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the reasons that they didn't bring back, you know, they had to really carefully balance how many horses were repatriated was because if they brought back loads, it would have flooded the market in the UK, which would have been really detrimental to economy because horses and the breeding and selling of horses was a very big part of the economy still because they were part of the workforce. I've learned so much. Got to ask you as well. Let's ask her this before she goes, Merrin. Joey gets all the bloody damned attention, doesn't he? Um, is there, are there famous real horses 
that you want to give a shout out to. I, the only one I can think of is the one that Hague's one that sat on the king. Um, but the king was adamant that even though he nearly died, no one should punish the horse and the horse um, should not be put down or anything. And there is a photo of the horse back on ceremonial outside Buckingham Palace. So that was that's of... amazing. I haven't heard that. Yeah, there's a picture of her outside um, Buckingham Palace because the king said it's not her fault. Shifty in the middle. <laughs> She's in the middle, yeah. Um, yeah, there are, there are loads of really lovely, um, stories of individual horses. Um, I probably quick shout out to the old blacks. Um, they were a team of gun horses. They served, um, throughout the war. So they, they were, went out with the original BF, stayed out in France till 1918. Um, all of them survived, um, had injuries, but they all survived. And they were, so they came back and they were pretty much horse celebrities and they actually supposedly, um, pulled the, um, the wagon with the the unknown warrior on uh, when it went to Westminster Abbey. So they were pretty famous. And then my other one is Tiny the Donkey. There are some amazing photos of Tiny the Donkey. And he was a, a foal that was found lying by the roadside by the um, 26th Divisional Train of the Army Service Corps. Ooh. And they adopted him and he became their mascot. And this is all, all during the Sonica campaign. Um, and he used to, used to wander freely around their camp and was apparently obsessed with drinking tea. So he used to drink up to nine cups of tea in succession, apparently. (laughs) Good English little horse. Um, I have to tell you now that your presence has not just been requested. It's been demanded by the kids of the Great War Group who want their next session to be on animals in the war. And they want you to tell them all about horses and, and pigeons randomly. Just pigeons yeah sure we love a pigeon story yeah. this is the eight to twelve year olds they desperately want you to come and talk to them all about horses and stuff so happy to do so but in the meantime thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about war horses it's been brilliant maybe come back and talk to us about cavalry action i know you've been working on some for the great war group um love to because you've written an article for, is it uh, did you cover the australian light horse yes yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's some, uh, yeah, there is some really good, um, for all the trashing Allenby gets as a general on the Western Front, uh, does rather well in Palestine when he can uh, run his cavalry out in a much more traditional way. So you should come back and tell us all about it. Love to. We chat Bathsheba. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life is going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.